Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up, Wizards fans? Welcome to another Believe in Wizards podcast. I'm your host, Matt Moderno. Got a great episode for you here today. The godfather, or realistically just the father of Bullets Forever, Mike Prada, who's now an editor for The Athletic and an author, will be joining us. Mike just wrote Spaced Out, The Tactical Evolution of the Modern NBA, and he's going to come on and talk about the book and, and some of the principles in it and how the you know the game is trending and whether or not the Wizards are actually sort of on the train you know, or, or along for the ride here with, with those trends. I would imagine not. I'm recording this before I've recorded with Mike, so I'll be very interested to hear uh, with you all in real time as we go through it and see what he thinks about, you know, sort of their adherence to modern philosophies and principles of, of basketball. And, and again, the title kind of says it all spaced out. We're going to talk a lot about sort of just moving further away from the basket and, and creating more space and giving people more room to operate. And a team that spent you know, most of two seasons ago running Robin Lopez post-ups, I would imagine probably doesn't fit in particularly well with those trends. But again, we will see. We're going to get into that all. Uh, I had a pretty in-depth prospect profile for today on Florida State's Baba Miller. He is a 6'11", realistically like super jumbo wing more than anything. I, honestly, he probably would have played the four or even some five this year at Florida State. But Unfortunately, the NCAA uh, is a joke and they've decided to suspend him 16 games. He took like $3,000 worth of travel benefits to come over to the U.S. for like a, a showcase before he'd even committed to Florida State and they immediately paid that money back. But somehow the NCAA determined that he would be suspended for half of their games. So he won't play until mid-January. If I'm him and I'm, you know, a potential lottery pick, I would honestly just like cut bait and go back overseas and play the whole season over there and, and try to have more game film for uh, NBA teams to evaluate. Because showing up in the middle of the college basketball season and having to fully integrate with the team in the middle of SEC or middle of ACC play, I just don't think is to anybody's best benefit. He's not sort of the most physically mature or developed guy yet. So now you've got to bang with Armando Baycott, who's had 15 games to get ready for you. I don't know. I mean, that would just be a significant disadvantage for him, I think. But again, he's a six foot eleven freshman wing from Spain. In their first exhibition game, I think he played like 15 minutes, but he had 11 points, seven rebounds, four assists, one steal, one block, and he hit three threes. This is a guy that was a six foot two guard for most of his career playing basketball so far and shot up to six eleven, which they also think he's still growing. So if you saw John Butler for Florida last year, like picture him, but plus 40 pounds. Again, he's still really skinny. Just John Butler was really skinny, but he's the next in the long line of sort of Florida State uh, jumbo wings that that are going to come out and be super athletic and tantalize, you know, pro scouts. And and he's my sort of Usman Jang that ultimately went to the Oklahoma City Thunder. That was a guy I got in on kind of in the middle of the, uh, the draft process last year and, and became enamored with. Didn't have like great on paper numbers, but the potential as like a six foot 10 guy who could put the ball on the floor and and do these sort of like unbelievable moves. Neither of them are converting on those moves uh, too much so far. So we'll, we'll see how uh, Baba can actually put that together when he ultimately gets on the court. But just, it's really a shame that the NCAA is like this. Like a guy, the guy broke a rule he didn't know was a rule. And if I'm the NCAA, I want the best players in Europe to come over. So penalizing someone like this is insane when you have guys like actively uh, negotiating their contract through Twitter to go to, to Miami and places like that. It's just, it's, it's just nuts to me that where we're at with NIL and things like that, that paying back $3,000 suspends you or gets you suspended for half the year. But anyway, keep an eye on the guy go watch some of his tape from Spain and didn't put up huge numbers, but just the, the flashes are tantalizing. And, and this is the kind of high upside guy that uh, in my campaign to be wizards uh, general manager um, or, or scouting department or whatever, these are the kind of guys I would be looking at and investing in. They're more home run swings. You could whiff terribly, but you know, there's a reasonable chance that us going for the safe guys and we're still whiffing on some of them. So you might as well at least um, swing for the fences a little bit more. Just my personal opinion. 
Uh, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, we're going to give out our sort of fan of the week championship belt uh, in honor of the Wizards defensive player of the game championship belt, which doesn't seem to have been doing them as much good the last couple of games, but that's OK. They'll get back uh, to it when. I don't know, whenever West gets them to kind of adhere to all their switching principles and, and things like that and understand when and who should rotate. Uh, that was sort of the big takeaway from that Pistons game, not to diverge too much from from the topic here, but just a lot of confusion around rotations and switches and stuff like that. So hopefully that gets all sorted out and, and the championship belt for them means something again. But for us as a fan, uh, it's Joe Swam this week. You've probably seen Joe on Twitter. If you interact with our account, my account or the Believe in Wizards account at all, and definitely seen Joe in the comments and stuff like that. Somehow this guy manages to promote each episode of this show before I even get to, and I'm the one literally pressing publish on them. So I always appreciate Joe, uh, you know, using his platform to give, us a little love, but more so he's just a constantly positive presence on Wizards Twitter. And honestly, we need that. I know I personally need that. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm obviously a, a little snarky sometimes, as you tell, if you if you still listen to this podcast. So it, Joe kind of helps ground me and, and center me. And uh, I, I appreciate him doing that too. Also just seemed like a good dad, which is awesome. I, I think uh, I grew up watching these games with my dad. So seeing him do that with his kid is, is also just a cool thing too. So shout out Joe. If anybody has suggestions for next week's fan of the game, send them my way. DMs are open and all that stuff. Uh, you know, we just want to like show some love to people in the fan base who are who are doing good things and representing us well. So that's sort of the goal here. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to kind of all the rest of the stuff here in a minute. Uh, when Mike comes on again, Mike Prada, the book is spaced out the tactical evolution of the modern NBA. I think we're gonna have a really, really good discussion. Before we get to that, obviously, we want to do a quick word from our sponsor, Bet Online. Basketball's back, and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events, whether that's NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, or even golf. Head to BetOnline.ag today. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% off welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. And just real quick, before we get to that combo with Mike, uh, obviously just a plug for our Capital City Go-Go night. Again, that's December 9th, so 12-9. Tickets are $10 for lower bowl tickets, and realistically, you could sit on the Go-Go bench, I think, for that $10, and really nobody's going to kick you out because that's just how intimate a setting it is. It's a really cool, nice venue. It's awesome inside. Food is half the half of what it is at a Wizards game, which shouldn't be too surprising, but it is. And if you get a $40 ticket, it's the same 100s level ticket, but you get unlimited beer and wine throughout the game. Just come on out. Have a good time with us. We're going to do a live podcast after. As I've mentioned, I think I've got some good guests lined up. If we get a good turnout, the team will line some guests up too. Not backing on that, you know, I uh, just want to make sure we're covered on our end and we'll have some people come in and, and we'll even get some listeners up there and stuff to, to give their takes in real time. So I think it should be a fun way to just engage as a community a little bit more. A lot of people listen to the show, which is always amazing to me and I'm incredibly appreciative of. Got a lot of really nice iTunes review this week. So thank you for everyone that took the time to do that. Uh, incredibly humbled, as I, I said on Twitter, that people listen to the show in the first place, but even more so that they would take even more time to tell other people that they like the show too. So I really appreciate that. Another opportunity to kind of show some love for the show has come out on the 9th. Um, hopefully that is kind of a nice foot in the door for us with the organization. And maybe we can do some cooler wizard stuff in the future. So hopefully this is a stepping stone to show them that, you know, we can get a good turnout and we are uh, all responsible-ish adults. And we'll just kind of go from there. Again, that's December 9th. And if you want the link to those tickets, again, don't buy tickets to the game outright from the team. Go through the link that the team created for us, which I will post in the episode description here again and we'll just uh we'll have a good time that's kind of the plan there should be some uh merch and stuff we give away and things like that too so uh should should be cool all right with that let's get to my conversation with mike prada about his book spaced out the tactical evolution of the modern nba i'm pleased to be joined here by mike prada uh, as i mentioned in the soft intro he is the father or godfather or whatever term you want to give of bullets forever so uh shout out mike for that but He's also the author of Spaced Out, The Tactical Evolution of the Modern NBA. 
like I'm like your target audience for this book. Uh, for anybody <laughs> that follows me on social media, I read like 70 books last year. Most of them were basketball. So uh, oh wow, okay. th- this this is my uh, sweet spot here. So I, I'm very much looking forward to to getting a copy of this and, and reading through it. Well, thank you for having me. I hope to be in the top 30 by the time this is all said and done. Definitely. So that seems like a reasonable thing to ask for. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and thanks for the kind words. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, perfect timing, I think. Uh, we're you know a couple of weeks into the NBA season here. And, you know, the book is about sort of, it's in the title, right? The spaced out revolution here we've seen over the last eight to 10 years. And I think uh, for Wizards fans specifically, this is a like a really relevant topic because we've got some questions about how this team is constructed and we can get into that later. But just first, I guess, can you give people kind of the, you know, the, the overview of what the book is about here and kind of the high level sense of, of what they'll be reading about? Yeah, I mean, I think the very simple way to explain it is that imagine that you were playing in a in a playing surface that was, I, I guess I, I you can see me, but the listeners can't, sure. this big, mm-hmm. uh, this high, and then over the course of less than a decade, it essentially doubles, mm-hmm. or at least sort of gets to 175% of the size. That's kind of what happened to basketball over the last 10 years. I mean, we there's been so much written about more threes being attempted and just that very basic fact what's been less appreciated and what uh this book is about is when you shoot more threes you have to stand further away to shoot them Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to you're a threat from out there which means that the whole structure of every sequence is further is spread further out and so in effect you're basically doubling the length the size of the court i mean if you think about it just in terms of length times width times uh, times height like the square footage of the court has just been dramatically altered and so given that you also haven't added more players obviously the whole way more has changed than just where you're shooting from Mm -hmm. and i think that's sort of like kind of i'd like to think it's a no dub point it's sort of been underappreciated in terms of how this has altered not just the structure of where the shots come from but also what some very big questions like what superstars are and what positions you play and the pace, how fast you play and all that to some of the more schematic questions, like kind of how do you, why is the pick and roll such a huge deal now? Uh, how do you defend it? Um, all that type of stuff. And all the way down to what players' skill sets are. You know, there's a lot in the book about how players are better passers now and why. Uh, how do you actually shoot a lot of long threes quickly? I mean, what does that do for your mechanics of your shooting motion? Um, and also how do you dribble? I mean, like the Wizards fans will appreciate this one because one of the subjects of that chapter was the famous LeBron James crab dribble incident in 2009 that was, uh, cited on bullets forever. I mean, just the way players dribble and move and step is totally different, mm-hmm. you know, and then obviously how do you defend all that? So there's just so much, the downstream effects of the three point revolution are just so profound that it's essentially created a sport that is not the same sport as it was prior to 2014. And the goal of this book is like, okay, this is a new sport now. What are, what can we say about it? Uh, let's reset um, in every way possible. And that's kind of the goal of the book. I, I think the offensive piece is, is probably the one that's more obvious to people. But if people now play different offensively, you have to play very different defensively too. And mm-hmm. I don't know that that sort of is, is quite clear cut for people or, or that's the piece that teams have maybe figured out a little less yet. Like if now yeah. everybody's spread out, how do you defend that? And I don't know that everyone has an answer at this point yeah i think we're just starting to reckon with that you know i think again like it's sort of as common sense in a way five players in this space versus or 10 players in this space versus 10 players in that space but i think you know to some degree like there are a few one of the points of the book is that there are kind of a chain there's a chain reaction of events that leads us to 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 the steph curry era Mm-hmm. To, for lack of a better word, sure. um, obviously that's an oversimplification as the book gets into. You know, you have um, the just the three point shot itself. You have the illegal defense rule going away in mm-hmm. two thousand one, which sort of institutionalized defense as more of a five man operation, and how that took a while to kind of get across. And the the effects of now because of that, you know, you need to the the way you play off ball is totally different. Um, to the hand-checking rule, to the Suns, to this Rockets-Warriors kind of holy war that I talk about, which kind of elevated the league forward to Steph Curry. There's a, it's a lot of different things kind of flying in there at once to create the league we see today. Uh, and yeah, I think defense is one of those things that 
you know, for a long time, I think a lot of people were like, well, how do you defend now with that hand checking? Like, it's mm-hmm. impossible, blah, blah, blah. It's only recently that I think the teams have started to reimagine, like, if we need these five players to fill this space versus that space, we need to kind of rethink how we do that all the way down to from schematically, uh, where I think that's what chapter 12 gets into. So I don't want to spoil that too much, but also technique, you know, do we step and slide now? Is that it's almost like I make this comparison to football defensive backs, you know, basketball, defending in basketball one-on-one is a lot more like guarding a receiver now, you know, versus at this trench warfare. And so that requires different body movements that I think because defense is one of those things that is institutionalized, is effort-based, it's Mm -hmm. sort of all this took a while to wrap your heads around. And, you know, just now, I think we're starting to kind of see what that might look like, and teams are reckoning with that. And, of course, just as we do that, offense continues to evolve. So, yeah, I think it is, you know, really much more recent how teams have kind of created, solved this problem of five of us in this much space. We got to we gotta figure that out somehow. There are uh, certain local teams that still haven't figured that out, uh, which I, I want to get into with you here a little bit. There's one question I neglected to ask before we get a little deeper into the book. Uh, every guest this season, I want to ask one question too before we start out. What mm-hmm. former or current NBA player best represents your own basketball game? I think it my points. own basketball game or lack thereof. Bonus points I mean, if you pick a wizard. Uh, is there a player who's constantly injured and never plays anymore? Because that's probably the best representation of me. I, I think we could probably come up with a few of those. Um, the Dwight Howard from his Wizards tenure comes to mind, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I would say that when I played more regularly before I kind of my back gave out and really has made it difficult. Uh, I don't know. It was kind of like, uh, I think I would have been very good as like one of those, um, on offense at least. It was like Gary Payton, the third, second Bruce Brown, like kind of. High intelligence, low skill offensive <laughs> players who kind of knew where to go and knew how plays could develop and kind of was good at sort of passing and vision, but like couldn't shoot a lay or the shot was inconsistent. Uh, maybe a slower version of that, I would say. I went with once he was past his prime and out of shape, Antoine Walker. So I feel like um, mm-hmm. personally that skill set would uh, dovetail very nicely into uh, this modern style of play here. Yeah, he was kind of a pioneer in a way. It's one of the those fours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you know the kind of undersized, you know, floor spacing, power forward ish guy. I, I think it would be interesting to see someone like that a little bit, you know, more in today's era. Uh, Mike, do you get into the book at all about like what are the teams that sort of incrementally led to this? Like whether that's Phoenix and seven seconds or less, or mm-hmm. Orlando or Denver or like it, Spurs, even like does that kind of factor into the book at all? I mean, the the short answer is yes to all of that, but uh, there are a lot of teams and players mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those guys get their shine. Uh, though there's actually a lot about Giannis and the Bucks, mm-hmm. just because you know, I wrote a lot of it during that season and sure. there's some in some ways like kind of their journey personified like kind of some of the there's a whole chapter about pick and roll defense that's essentially written through the lens of the bucks and how it changed from kid era to now um but really the the main characters of the book and i describe it this way in the beginning and you know there's no way to tell the story without them is first phoenix under dan tony mm-hmm. and then imagine like a religion like imagine they're sort of um it's like, yeah, imagine there's sort of a, a religion that sort of splits into two sects. There's kind of, I'm trying to think of the best, like, sort of actual religion <laughs> for this. Um, like, if, if like Catholicism splits in or Protestantism sp- splits into two different types of Protestantism, like, again, I'm Jewish, so, uh, you know, but you essentially have the one sect of it, which is kind of the more art, uh, art side of it, which is Golden State. Mm-hmm. And then you have kind of the science la- element, which is Houston. Um, and just these two, this rivalry that Golden State wins in the scoreboard, but Houston obviously pushes them in terms of influence, kind of as they kind of butted heads about the ways that they were different. The rest of the league realized how all of them were similar, how they were similar. So it was kind of one of those, I, I call it a holy war between the two of them because it, it kind of wasn't, it's kind of, it was kind of a cold war. Because they all kind of, there were a lot of thinly veiled shots they yeah, sent at each other. Sniping at each other in post game and stuff. Right. It wasn't like sort of this like one active, like big fight. And mm-hmm. I think 
when you think about it too, like there are members of those O five Suns that made their way to both teams. Yeah. Um, and just that rivalry and just the impact of that, the ways that they were different, but also the same, the ways that they bashed their heads against each other in particular, I think that 2018 series that I described that though, that rivalry pushed the league forward. Everybody had to level up to them. And the other, I don't necessarily say this in the book, but in some ways, like the bubble, and I wrote a piece about this on the uh, um, on the newsletter, was almost like the Warriors won again because I think the teams that play more like them beat the teams that play more like Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of that, th- those are the main characters of the book. Those two teams, those key figures, the way that they butted heads stylistically, the way that Houston kind of was like the maverick that was willing to go further than you know, teams that even one stuff would go. Um, and they were almost the extremist, you know, again, I, anyone who knows religion can probably make a better specific case on the fly than I am. And then you have golden state, which is the team that actually won and the team that has the player that is most defines this era. And just their fight kind of brought the league forward. I think if you're looking for like who the main teams are, I mean, those are the two. Those are the two main characters of the book, I would say. You hear a lot about like this notion of heliocentric offense, and obviously mm-hmm. the, the Houston team kind of like championed that. But it's also a copycat league, right? And when somebody wins doing something, that's when people seem to adopt it a little bit more. So it is interesting to see people kind of follow that Phoenix or that Houston philosophy, despite it not kind of ultimately culminating the championship. Can you talk a little bit about just sort of like where we are split wise in the league? Like, are there more golden state emulators or, are there more Houston folks? And is it because Houston is maybe easier to replicate than what golden state has? I, you know, there's no other Steph Curry. There's no other prime Draymond. There's no other clay Thompson. I mean, there's something very unique about what golden state built that just like, couldn't can't be copied um whereas with houston i mean you could argue there's no other james harden there's no other maury there's no other all that but you know i think houston it's a little easier but i don't know if that's actually necessarily the right framing of the question okay you know i understand why a lot of times and you know actually one of the guys who's mentioned who's actually been excerpted on the Nation's main site that kind of is a good illustration of what houston kind of has done despite experiencing less success is don nelson where sometimes i think in any movement not to get all philosophical you have sort of the mainstream vessel of that movement you know just to use like civil rights as an example martin luther king is the main vessel he's kind of now held up as this like kind of mainstream version of him even though he was quite radical and you sort of had like Malcolm X was like sort of the, again, I'm probably butchering this history a little bit, but the comparison would be there's one, there's one group that two schools of thought to, going for one sort of common goal at the end. Right? Yeah. You know what? Let me use a star Wars. Example. <laughs> okay. Let's that, make this easier. That might You've be got, more relatable to this particular audience. Yeah. Right? You got Luke Skywalker and uh, Leia and those are, that's the warriors, but like kind of Saul Guerrero is kind of the Houston Rockets. Like there's gotta be somebody who's sort of uncompromising, willing to push the limits to kind of shove a movement forward. And where most people will look at them and be like, well, we aren't going to do all that they did. Mm-hmm. But like, actually, the guy kind of had a point with a lot of this stuff. You know, you need both to kind of create a revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sort of how I would describe the Golden State Houston dynamic, where I don't think there's... You know, there are teams that are obviously more closely aligned to Houston, like I think Dallas, for example. And then there are a lot of teams that I think are more closely aligned with Golden State. Uh, And I would say that in general, I think sort of movement has trumped just standing still in a way that kind of is a Golden State victory. Mm -hmm. But you needed a figure like Harden, a figure like Maury, a figure like Houston to kind of just kind of, again, like push the envelope. and. I think you, you see, and that's why I think it also comes full circle back to the Suns because the, you know, that's the split. But um, it's almost like there's a piece of the Rockets and Warriors and everybody now, in a weird way. And and obviously now also they're sort of they're kind of different versions of kind of building on that. 
um, where I think certain bigs have kind of changed the league and, you know, we're going to slightly, you're kind of going beyond that. But I, I think it's sort of hard to say one is more copied than the other. They're just so hand in hand. I was having this conversation with a friend probably a couple months ago at this point, but just how that Gilbert Arenas era Wizards team would have looked in today's version of basketball. Oh my and God. It'd be interesting to know if, if they would, which of those they'd kind of go with. Is it the ball movement heavier version? Is it the build everything around Gil and we stand around? Like, I would be curious to see how that team plays out, you know, in 2023. Probably the latter. I, I think they would have been. Not it would have turned out fairly similarly, I think, mm-hmm. because ultimately the other thing that's happening is that like you could not live as easily with so many defensive liabilities on the floor. Sure. So that I think they still would have been perhaps a more extreme, like kind of what Atlanta has been like with Trey. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it would been. It might have been more systematized because of Eddie Jordan's Princeton stuff. Sure. Um, but I suspect that they would have looked a little bit like that team, and or maybe even like kind of. I think Gill is in many ways kind of the. A spiritual basketball ancestor to someone like Damian Lillard. Yeah, that's the one I think of too. And Portland, I think, has experienced maybe more success than the Wizards had, but mm-hmm. um, you know, still never really a team that was kind of a serious. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so twice as many threes now as a decade ago, essentially. Like you know, mm-hmm. the Suns would be like bottom five in the league or whatever bottom bottom, bottom period right it, i think they would have been bottom period yeah yeah which which is wild to think about like that they pushed the envelope but didn't push it far enough and it's not that the math i almost said that the math has changed here in basketball but it hasn't changed this always existed so so why did it take teams so long a, to really fill, you know figure this out the million dollar question that's the um very much the topic of chapter one um to summarize, I would say one is that we forget exactly how the NBA got the three-point line into the league in the first place. It was very divisive. It came from in the ABA, a league mm-hmm. that they squashed like a bug. There was a lot of backlash to that. Sure. Um, it was a very, it was very tough for people at the time to wrap their heads around this idea that there's a shot that's worth more points. Um, it kind of was a very, again, like it was very philosophical, very cut deep to the core. It barely snuck through. As soon as it snuck through, people like Jerry Colangelo are saying, actually, this isn't going to change the game that much. I mean, there's a massive chilling effect that we talk about in the first chapter. And then beyond that, I think the reason that the explosion happened, because it was, you know, obviously gradually more threes are being taken. But I think I have this stat that 22% of shots were threes in both 2008 and 2011. So it's not like there's this big explosion. I towed for a while there. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just really starting with the Suns, but really with the Warriors. Like once I think teams realized, oh, we can use the three point line as a chaos engine. Mm -hmm. Like we can let go, we can kind of create this whiplash frenzy. We can draw it. We have to shoot a lot from out here to make the defense come out here. Uh, We can kind of use this to leverage it to get better shots. Then I think teams realize that like it was more than just three is greater than two. I mean, even Dan Tony has said many times that like the whole point of what he did with the Rockets was just to get better layups. Mm -hmm. And I think people kind of understood that relationship, but more so in reverse, you know, there was still, even like kind of with some of the teams that like you mentioned, the magic of Stan Van Gundy. I mean, even with some of those teams, the thought was like inside out. Mm -hmm. And I think the Warriors are one of the first teams. And we still have different forms of inside out, of course. Driving in some ways is an inside out thing. But I think the Warriors are the first team to realize we can also go outside in. And so I think that's one reason that I think that's one reason that, um, you know, there are other factors. I think the illegal defense rule is a huge one. I'll get into that in chapter three. It just sort of institutionalized basketball is more less of a one on one game, which means it required players to present a threat from further away to kind of keep defenses honest a little bit differently. And the hand checking obviously sped up the game. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just there was um, a chilling effect of the three-point line initially, and then it took a while for people to kind of go from we can use this to we can use this, capital letters. I, I think you know. one of the really like interesting things I think you've teased out with this book that that I hadn't really heard sort of people put emphasis on but it's not just that three is more than two but 
now how you get your twos is different and how people defend twos and, and you have right. freedom to operate and you've got more floor to cover and, and right. everything else changes with that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think Seth, my friend Seth Partner, who wrote a book for Triumph, likes to say this all the time. And I think in some ways, sort of the shot chart revolution sort of flattened this out too much for people mm-hmm. to understand. But like the the like kind of the map is not the territory, I think, is the way he puts it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, where you shoot the ball doesn't really tell the story as much as kind of I'd almost wish that they'd have like movement charts like yep. they do in soccer. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that would help us understand this all better. I mean, but to reduce it to a very simple concept, the league realized that it was better to abdicate the space we're going for and charge it selectively mm-hmm. and effectively than to ram multiple bodies through yeah. it by sheer force. It's like, it's like using, yeah, it's like using archers instead of a battering ram. I, I, um, I like that analogy. So I think, and now what's interesting is that we're almost kind of, there are some ways that the art, the, the, the method of charging the basket has changed and, there's some interesting stuff going on even in the last couple of years, more low, quick, low post duck-ins, more, more stationing players deep on the baseline and trying to pin people in and playing the possession game, more offensive rebounds. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff kind of evolving off that. But um, as a general rule, you're increasing the amount of territory that the opponent must guard. And that makes it just easier to, I mean, it's like capture the, I almost had a capture the flag analogy as my intro, but just like imagine playing capture the flag and then one day the instructor is like, oh, actually the boundary that was at this tree is actually, is actually at that tree. I mean, it would change how you would try to get the flag Mm -hmm. if you're a smart, if you're like kind of a capture the flag strategist and not just like kind of playing it for fun. The thing that's really interesting to me with a lot of this too is just the type of player that succeeds based on the style of play. And you had mm-hmm. a great conversation with Sam Bassini on the Game Theory podcast. Um, Sam does a great job, and, and I thought you guys had a really, really interesting kind of philosophical convo there too. And just like how certain players have like thrived during certain stages of this, and you know, like the Kenneth Fareed mentioned, and how the way Denver played enabled him to to do certain things. But I guess what are the types of players that are most successful now? Like we hear a lot about three and D, but you need stretch power forwards, I think are sort of like your yeah. four has to space, which I think is almost kind of underrated, but they also have to be able to guard one through four. Like to me, yeah. the four is almost the, the most interesting position to me in the NBA right now. Cause you have to have so much versatility there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess then you could even get into the conversation about what is a position um which is something that actually is a subject of chapter four i I do think that the term positionalist as that chapter makes obscures more as much as it illuminates it's kind of it's kind of too shorthand Mm um yeah i mean what succeeds i mean i think the first thing to kind of say to that and this kind of gets to um the chapter four in particular is yeah, you can talk about specific players or whatever, but it all is how it fits together. I mm-hmm. mean, that's what really matters. And once you divorce positions from height, which is essentially what's happened, you can kind of reimagine how to bundle the five. Mm-hmm. And I think get, the way the game has evolved, and particularly with the legal defense and all that, like there is more of an em- emphasis really on just you got to make your whole fit like your lineups have to make sense um as far as like a player type i mean i think the um the obvious trend now is to go there's a great story by my guy james herbert on cbs sports about this the obvious trend is to go almost longer bigger what is bigger is sort of an interesting question it's very easy to conflate that with like kind of size and a low post but i mean it really is about sort of wingspan and length and height and all that i mean Again, you want to if you just want to think about this very basically. Longer players cover more of the court. You don't get you can't add more players, but you can make those players that you have cover more space. Um, and that leads to obviously a lot of interesting questions about you know, how do you build lower bodies that keep up with the frame that the players now need. And you know, boy, Victor Wembyama coming in the league is going to be real interesting from that perspective. I, there's almost a part of me that feels like we've almost like. Victor Wembayama is like the basketball form of Icarus. Like, are we flying way too close to the sun to create a person that is We've gone to the extreme, extreme here. Yeah. yeah, I just wonder. I mean, that's a weird mythology 
uh, analogy, but I do think in general, one of the interesting player types, you sort of mentioned it. The term three and D is basically useless now. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, this term, which was really only, I talked about in the intro that there are like sort of some things that we've kind of come to use as cliches mm-hmm. so quickly that they sort of, they, we sort of forget what where they came from and they, they kind of hit this this you know modern consensus and then like the game has changed so fast that like it's almost like kind of we use their archaic now i mean a player who's of that type can't does it makes it sound like all they have to do is stand still and hit a three-pointer and defend i mean it's so much more than that so I, I do think like one of the the prototypes you're looking at a lot is kind of the like sort of giant, the long, you know, man defender, good, but really more so the space eater on the perimeter. Everyone on uh, Toronto, basically, except Fred Van Tor- Toronto is kind of the, again, Toronto's kind of the uh, uh, Saw Guerrero of this movement, yeah. um, you know, They're but I, I think, you know, like, like a Herb Jones is sort of someone I look at mm-hmm. and Mikhail Bridges, where it's not. Their value stems in part from their one-on-one defense, but really it's about how much space they cover off the ball from like kind of the nail to the three-point line sure. and how quickly they can rotate to get hands in the passing lanes. Just that deterrent in that in those spaces. I think you're seeing more of those types, whether they play the three, the four, the two, whatever. Um, I think that type of player is obviously in very high demand now. Do you see any of those types of players, like literally any of them, on the Washington Wizards currently <laughs> constructed? Uh, well, God, it's so funny. You know, I want to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about Chris Stapps because mm-hmm. historically, I think it's Chris Stapps is a player that as recently as five years ago or wh- whenever Kevin Durant called him the unicorn, this guy was Victor Wembanyama. This yeah. was like the solution. And it is amazing to me, and I think it is a reflection of how fast the game has changed and how there are some players, I think he's one example, who who come along and they have the skills but not the body. I think Tracy McGrady was a great example of this in the mid-2000s where it's like you plop that dude in today's game and it's like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. But just his body was not built for it. Mm. He hadn't had the right type of training. I didn't do that. Chris Epps comes in and I think like kind of the breakdown of his body over time and how it has kind of affected him and turned him into essentially like kind of a, a stretch center. It's still a very good player, but just not, I don't think the promise of what he was going to be where it was like, again, I think of one, Yama, like there was like kind of a period where it was like, that's the guy Chris Epps is going to be. Mm-hmm. It really hasn't been that. I think it's a reflection of how quickly the game has changed. Um, and how we took for granted what it actually means to tell a guy who's that size and that length, whatever. You actually also have to play in all this space. Yeah, you don't um, have to cover the whole floor as opposed to just under the rim. Right. And I think it's affected him and made him le- less than what he was promised to be. Although, again, he's th- he's actually played quite well this year. They, they talked a um, lot with him in the offseason about how in Dallas he spent a lot of time trying to bulk up. And since mm-hmm. he's been in Washington, he's really worked with their training staff on on getting leaner and more flexible. And and I think he's been springier this year. And, and that seems to have like paid off at least. So yeah. Far. Yeah. I mean, he, he looks better this year than he has in the past. But, you know, at a certain point, there's only so much you can do at this age of your life. Right. I mean, in some ways. So mm, I, sure. I think this is sort of more of a grassroots question. Um as far as the question of like sort of do the Wizards have their Herb Jones essentially, the answer is kind of no. Obviously, this is a huge challenge of theirs. I mean, they have some nice, interesting players at that position, you know, that can kind of cosplay a little bit of that. Um, they have obviously a ton of like three fours, as we all know. A four threes, even, you know. Whatever you want to call them. I mean, there are elements of Kyle Kuzma in that. There I mean, think one of the reasons I think there's all this sort of I, we all like kind of like Denny Avdia and feel like the Wizards are not using him right is because like you look at him and he's like, well, that's the closest thing we have to that type of player. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly look they're hard to find mm-hmm. <laughs> or at the very least they require like a lot of imagination to find. Um, and that's tough, you know, they're tough to find those types of players. And a lot of times you have to, be willing to take a risk and we all know what this organization's risk tolerance is 
well, the teams that seem to be successful recently are the ones that have kind of leaned into this and are stockpiling those types of players that that can guard multiple positions, you know, again, air quotes positions, but multiple places on the floor, cover a lot of ground, have some length. Mm-hmm. I think Denny Abdi is kind of clearly the best individual defender of that group, but is he the team defender that you're talking about? And it's hard to tell in the context of the Wizards when he's not surrounded by other guys that are, are maybe doing necessarily mm-hmm. what they need to do. And I don't know if you caught this Philly game the other night, but... I did, yes. I've watched every game. Okay, well, th- that one especially pointed this out to me, like the the very heavy diet of Anthony Gill. Anytime that the person uh, Porzingis was guarding screened Gill guarding either Maxi or Harden, it just seemed like the Wizards were totally lost on how to handle that because Gil wasn't fast enough to recover. And obviously you can't keep Porzingis on Harden for very long. So they just seemed kind of stuck in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's, they don't have the personnel for it. They don't have the philosophy figured out, all of the above. It, it just kind of, I don't know. It was the, we are not equipped to combat sort of this, again, like the Houston style of basketball at the very least. Right. Well, and they were doing that stupid thing where they were trapping Harden like it's 2019 again. Like that drove me nuts. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in fairness to the Wizards and to Wes, um, Denny is has. It's hard to know. Denny doesn't quite know the type of player he is yet, you know. And Denny has to be a better offensive player, and Denny has to be more consistent. You know, he, you know, frankly commits a lot of fouls that are foolish, and he's. Mm-hmm. You know, can you trust him on a day-to-day basis? Uh, and Denny has to be a little bit better of a mover and a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot. Sure. These guys aren't all finished products. And whatever you want to say about about Gil, Gil moves really well. He's a very good off-ball player. He's uh, usually in the right spots. Um, I can understand the desire of like, look, if we have no point guard now because DeLon writes out, we could use more of Denny on the second unit and maybe it's not a demotion and you know, all that. Um, but you know, it, it, it is true. I mean, this is sort of, like you said, the whole thing doesn't really scale structurally on this team and that's, it's not easy to do, but we talked a little bit about, you know, it's all about combinations. It's all about, um, how players fit together, you know, that creates, there's a force multiplier effect where like one plus one equals a thousand. If that in basketball, if that kind of works out, I mean, that's the beauty of it, but it could also equal less than two. And that's kind of, it's like sort of uh, ludicrous math, I guess, but that's sort of how basketball works. And with Denny, I think there are been a lot of times where it's like, does one plus one, can we figure out a way for one plus one to equal more than the sum of its parts? And I do think that on some level, they have not, they have been quick to pull off experiments with him where it may be worthwhile again to just sort of give him more rope. If you're not winning anyway, why not um, try a few of these things out? And, and Gil, um, he does some nice things, but I just think your ceiling is sort of limited with someone like that. I think the stretch of that game, you had him sort of very reluctant to shoot the ball to the point where it allowed those last three possessions for for Philly to double off of him and, and double Brad and you saw those turnovers. It's just right. It, yeah. I mean, even rotationally though, I mean, th- this is the thing that's a challenge. I mean, before this least last rough patch, mm-hmm. right. They had, their starting lineup was great and the bench sucked. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the, def- so it's a jigsaw puzzle for West to figure out, particularly without right. their best bench player for the first four games of the season now injured. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you take away from the starting lineup to power the bench? Like, do you lose something? And I could see the argument that like, well, Anthony Gill wasn't really in the rotation before. So if we sort of put him in and maybe least disruptive, um, and how the rotation flows, I mean, it's, these are the types of things. I mean, I think coaches always had to worry about this, but it does feel like these challenges are more complicated because so much of what, determines the shape of a player or possession happens much more off the ball and yeah you, know, you really have to think about lineup fits a lot more kind of systemat systemically and it's i think it again like and part of that is then has to scale up organizationally and i i, I feel a little bit for wes in this one sure. but I, okay. I i do also think that you know it might not be the right if your starting lineup is working you may as well lean into it 
And I do think that Denny provided an element and like a structure to like kind of he could go out and Rui could come in and Rui's played very well this year for him. I don't know if that was the place I would have disrupted the setup. It's the closing lineup that I think is interesting to me because it magnifies what Gil doesn't do when you have him out there on the floor at the end of the game. And and that's that's where I just sort of wonder like what the plan is in general. Like is your defense all that good if DeLon Wright is like that quintessential to everything you do defensively that they've fallen uh, off a cliff? No. I mean, the answer is no, but I mean, what what's the plan with all this is just the big existential question for everything. Um, it sucks, but that kind of takes that 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 scales everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, again, you talk about this a little bit too, but like you know, there, some of the teams that like and it may just be that we like different. Like Toronto's got plenty of problems. That's I mean, they're better than the Wizards, but like you know, their offense. You know, how are they going to score enough points? Mm. Uh, in high leverage situations, like, do they take it too far? But you do at some point have to like be willing to kind of take a chance. Take a lane. It's just something you gotta, you do have to like, in some way, like stand for something. Um, and like, I mean, look, the wizards are, have thought short term in the last 10 years. We all know this. Uh, they don't want to feel the pain of losing, but. You know, that's, I mean, they're trying to cheat the life cycle of basketball teams. And, you know, that's, that's you see where it gets them. I, I think that's the most frustrating thing for fans is it's not an obvious understanding of what the plan is. And, and you wrote this whole book about what's working and what's successful and what modern basketball looks like. And then you see the Wizards are bottom in three point attempt, bottom five and three point attempts, bottom five and three point makes. Uh, they're high end on, on both mid range and, and post ups. It's like those things don't seem to be working, but we're sort of doubling down on them. I, I just, I think well, that's, it's interesting because it's interesting because I feel like, like they have more spacing this year. They're, I mean, supporting Pizzingas to the five is, I think, made Beal look a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, if they're, to, there are teams that follow trends and there are teams that set trends. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I guess when you look at the young guys that they've drafted, did those players seem to fit into, you know, where where basketball is going? You've got Rui that's sort of very mid-range heavy and not a great defender thus far. You've got Denny that can't really stretch the floor. And, you know, the team defense will be kind of an issue. You've got Johnny Davis, which... The whole fan base has seemingly written off as a total bust after 23 minutes played, but he, he looks awful. He looks really bad, but awful. Even, I, I don't think I've seen a rookie that highly drafted look that lost in his first 23 minutes. I, I would definitely agree with you. I, I think even just if you think the best version of him, I, I don't know how that scales up particularly well with where people no. are going anyway. Yeah, I don't think it was a good pick. I think it's it, we can just call a spade a spade. Um, I think, I mean, look, maybe you will be wrong, but no, I mean, I think it's hard to divorce this question from like sort of how they fit in a larger vision of what this team is. Mm-hmm. Um, because to be able to develop skills, you need to have some vision for where they all fit in. And yeah, I mean, I think in theory, like, you know, there's, there's a world where those guys are very modern players, but you have to find some sort of setup that facilitates that development. And no, let me put it this way. It's tough to know whether these picks are misevaluations, only so-so evaluations, or misdevelopment, or only so-so development. But at the end of the day, the question is almost irrelevant. Because it ain't, it's still the same problem, just from a slightly... just depends how you define it. I always like harp on just context with a player, too. and And for a lot of these guys... They brought them into fill roles that they had never filled before, and their skill sets didn't seem to really bear out that they would be able to fill those roles. So I think you're just sort of putting your own guys at a disadvantage by not having, by not drafting toward what your actual philosophy is. And if it's not obvious to everyone else, like, can you think of other teams in the league where it's just like really confusing about what they're trying to do or what oh, they're I trying can, to build? But but, uh, that, but that are I good. Think some, but that are uh, good. Like I think most yeah, I mean, of the good think, teams think, in the league, you kind of just can look at them and see at least where they're trying to go with what they're doing. I mean, the obvious sort of comparison to me is like kind of 
Milwaukee a decade ago, which was just kind of messing around, and then just they get Giannis, and it all changes. So it only takes one thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely the hard trot, hard trod path to contention. Any uh, other things that you've either learned through researching this book, or that it affirmed for you that I think one could translate to the Wizards, obviously, but two, just you think is is sort of something that other teams should focus in on or or try to adopt more of. Uh, I mean, I, I do think that there's something interesting happening with the possession game and sort of full court play being like kind of not offense, not defense, just sort of one game. Uh, I think there are some interesting ways of that I make the, I, I use a comparison. There's a great uh, moment where George Carl's Nuggets teams like decide, Hey, let's just put players out of bounds to kind of basically. I love that increase the boundary of the floor and make it easier to drive. And that sort of has inspired a lot of what we're seeing with Milwaukee, with some of these other teams where like more players are now standing in what's known as a dunker spot, kind of right underneath the basket. Essentially, if you can't extend the borders of the floor out away from the hoop, we can extend them almost behind the hoop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, and I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, and what that effect is on the game is going to be very, uh, it'll be interesting to see moving forward. Um, but mostly what I kind of learned was like, it's hard to change the way you think. It's hard to change the way you play. There are figures all throughout history who kind of espouse views that it would you would say like, oh, you drop them into today and that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But there's a matter of there's a lot that has to happen to change incumbency and to change how the game is played. There are a lot of incentives that have to line up and for Mike D'Antoni, they end up very well for someone else who maybe thought a lot like Mike D'Antoni. There's a spurting figure in the book that I mentioned that I don't want to share here that people will find interesting. It, they didn't for various reasons. Um, so I think you know, one can wonder like why people don't do the things that seem successful in hindsight, but it's not a really interesting way to me to see like how things develop. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why revolutions or changes don't happen quickly. Um, in some ways, 35 years or however long it took for the three point for all this to happen is pretty quick compared to some of human history's inventions that seem obvious in hindsight. You know, there are so I think it's like worth kind of considering basketball from the same lens as we kind of think through it. You know, like that. People don't do things, it's not there's rarely a right answer to any of this. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of things that people try, things that come together. I mean, the Warriors, in so many ways, Draymond Green's emergence was a total accident, yep. you know. So, even people, and I think people who are humble enough and smart enough to know like kind of what they don't know are and the Warriors are an example, at least outside of their owner, um, would say that same thing. You know, Steve Kerr will admit that he didn't think Draymond would be this type of player. I mean, who, who would have thought that? Um, I'm not sure Draymond thought he'd be this kind of player no matter what he says. I mean, maybe. I mean, who knew that Steph Curry would revolutionize the game? Yeah. But, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know, not to get all deep and philosophical. I just think it's always important to keep an open mind about these things. Yeah, I love that. I think that's why this book is so timely and interesting because it's a different sort of perspective shift on on how we, you know, we look at what we're actually seeing and, and kind of take it a level deeper. Yeah. Now, I, one thing I want to point out that I just love about basketball is like, I don't know how much you watch other sports, but what's another team sport where you can see all 10 players in the frame for a vast majority of the game? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's a good. There, I mean, you can't you can't do it in football. I mean, when you're watching on TV, to be clear, obviously, if you're sure. in person, theoretically, you could. So, you know, when you think about analysis of all this, like no one human being could possibly see all ten everything going on at once. So I just think there's so much power in like kind of rebundling what is being described and to show it and kind of, you know, there's no one way anything happens. And in basketball compared to other sports where, I mean, even soccer, you don't see the goalies, even hockey, you don't always see the goalies. Uh, there's just so much room to kind of consider the whole as like kind of this ever evolving geometric shape of players in a way that I think we didn't 
over the that's only become more obvious over the last 10 years i think before it wasn't really basketball was more of a kind of a station to station one-on-one uh you do this and then you move on to this and then you move on to this type of game and you know just analytically like kind of it's inspiring to know i think that you can go in so many different directions just based on what you see in front of you on a tv screen i guess i'm curious through researching this and talking to people and and basketball figures and stuff like that if if you noticed or heard about any sort of other trends that might be coming you know down the (laughs) the pipeline here or is is the next several years just about like refining this and doing this better and really figuring this out we talked about you know still learning how to defend these things um yeah have you have you heard of the paradox of expertise a little bit yeah i mean i'm I'm familiar with the general concept right so i like to think that i've become a category expert on this era which means based on the paradox of expertise that it would be the absolute worst at predicting what's next fair Uh, so i'll just go with that I like it. Uh, all right. Last kind of question I got for you here. And I think this is a, a wizard relevant one. Tommy Shepard spent a lot of the last off season talking about their need for like the prototypical pure point guard. And that's what they really wanted to get. And then we're seeing with this year's team, you've got Morris that's kind of not used to that role after having played next to Jokic. And there's a lot of point Beal or point Kuzma, I guess, mm-hmm. just looking at, at trends and these teams that have worked and, and what people are going with now like do you need a pure a pure air quotes pure point guard like the old school pass first set everybody up kind of guy in the way basketball's played today i mean i think it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about you need a structure that works a five man structure mm-hmm. you don't need so if your team is in need of that sort of you're essentially making evaluation that because the existing players in your team like need some sort of structure like that i mean creation help for everybody else or something right and i and i I think in general like kind of you don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily need to come from a certain a player who looks like a point guard i mean that's sort of the big message i I mean i i think it is fair to say that like kind of the dinwiddie thing fell apart last Mm -hmm. year in part because he and Beal couldn't figure out a way to coexist. So you wanted to try something different. Um, but, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways to skin that cat. And the real question you have to ask yourself is how, what are the skill sets of our players? How do they all scale up? Because ultimately you need multiple playmakers at all positions in all different ways. And so I think, you know, one could, I could see where Tommy was coming from with that point. Um, I think there's definitely a logic to, you need a, a point guard who is a little more deferential so that Beal can kind of do his thing. Does it have to be a pure point guard? Can you get blinders and look at kind of that sort of thing? Possibly. But I also, I mean, DeLon Wright's also there. And what, what would you call him? Um, you know, what would you call Will Bar? I mean, I, I don't know. I guess the the thing is I don't necessarily know that, like, kind of, the answer to that question, I, I do know that whatever the dynamic they had with Dinwiddie was a problem, and they needed someone unlike Dinwiddie. And that, by the way, is a misevaluation on the Wizards' part because of all they did to get Dinwiddie. That's the one in a long line of of several of those, at least in the last couple of years, to to say the least. Uh, yeah, Mike, anything that without giving it away or anything you'd like to tease for for potential readers here, hopeful readers here uh, that, that we haven't talked about here yet. The only thing I'll say is that um, there are, instead of kind of clipboard, like X's and O's graphics, really basic ones. It meant a lot. It was very important to me kind of maybe in the realm of some of the writing I've done elsewhere. There are, there are graphics that are literally spatial alignments of plays throughout NBA history. Mm -hmm. Like I looked at the play in question that I thought was relevant describing this concept i was talking about in the book i like recreated the um kind of space like who the players are where they're standing i like freeze framed it and i sent them on to the designer and they made and they made it so the goal was to sort of illustrate how the whole thing was just kind of constantly changing uh Mm -hmm. over time and there are 32 of them and i think you know i've given some books away based on people trying to guess what they are um but i think it's a different way to illustrate the book that i hope works it's a great call because I think sometimes people just need to like 
see it in an application to really kind of grasp, you know, some, some of these concepts. All right. So this is the single most important question I will ask you on this show. Oh my God. There've been like five last questions. I this love is, it. This is the most important of the most important questions though. Where can people buy the book? Oh yes, of course. Uh, everywhere you get books, Amazon. I, I would encourage you to, although that's obviously no additional, like I'll, I'm happy that you get the book anywhere, but Go to your local bookstore. They should have it. Um, if they don't pre-order it, they should get it. Go to bookshop.org. Um, just because I think it's important to keep those in business. Um, but you can get it Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you get it. And I'm forever grateful that you get it in any way possible. Um, print, ebook. I mean, I think it's... I would obviously love it if you got a print edition. But um, I'm happy if anyone would buy it. Um, it's out now as of yesterday. So... Perfect timing yeah. here. I will be heading out this weekend to get my copy. Next time uh, we're in the same place, I'll see if I can get you to sign it for me. Uh, Absolutely. I am hoping to maybe do a DC trip, but I'm still there's a lot to figure out there. Well, keep us all posted on that. If I see something from you on social media, I'll share that out for everybody else. Thank mm -hmm. you for making time to do this. Congratulations on the book and, and good luck with all the promotion and all the other stuff that comes with it. Thank you for having me, Matt. All right. Hope you all enjoyed that convo. As always, remember to rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And we were presented by betonline.ag and we'll catch you next time. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube